Okay, could I, could I welcome everyone um, to the Divinity School and to um, this session on global humanities at Oxford. Um, I'm going to introduce myself and tell you how the, this, this session is going to operate, and we hope that there'll be plenty of time for questions from the audience uh, after all the speakers have spoken. Um, I'm Shira West. I'm a professor here at Oxford, and I'm head of the Humanities Division. I've, in fact, only just come to Oxford a month ago to do this job, so I'm very new in post, um, and uh, I'm really very pleased to be here and very honoured to be here. Um, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to say a few words about what I think global humanities means in Oxford, particularly. I'm going to give a brief introduction to the three distinguished speakers we have today, and then each of them are going to speak just for a few minutes about some ideas related to the research that they're doing on sort of the global humanities issues. I'd like to start out really by um, talking about something another university in the UK says about itself. Uh, university College London has a strap line where they say they are London's global university. And uh, my view is they probably are, but we are the world's global university. And I think that that is, I'm going to now say, give you five reasons why I think that's the case. I think the first thing is if you look at the people in Oxford, if you look at our staff and our students in humanities, uh, nearly 50% of the staff in humanities at Oxford come from somewhere other than the UK. And the reason for this, I think, is because Oxford attracts the best in the world, wherever they are, whether they're in the UK or whether they're from elsewhere. And even among the students in our postgraduate population, our postgraduate taught students in humanities are more than 50% from other parts of the world. So that means we have a population here in Oxford that is very global. Um, the people are from everywhere. And I think they are the best as well. So, and that's a personal view, but I think held out by others as well. I think the second reason Oxford's humanities are global is because of the content of our teaching and our research. Um, I, I won't say that we cover all times and all places, but we cover most times and most places, both real and imaginary. And I sometimes think there are probably only just a couple of icebergs in the Arctic that aren't worked on by humanities scholars in Oxford. I think also, I, th I think we see ourselves as, as, as a sort of holders of a, of a repository of knowledge, a sort of comprehensive repository of knowledge. We conserve, we, we, we preserve it, we conserve it, we protect it, we critique it. And we also are very fortunate here in having world-class libraries and museums, um, the Bodleian, the Ashmolean, and the other um, libraries and museums in Oxford. So a third, I think, reason that Oxford Humanities is global is what we can and do offer to the world's global challenges. We all know that there are many global challenges in the world. There is climate change, there's poverty, there's conflict, uh, there's, there's food security, there are all sorts of issues of the world, many of which people first think about as being resolvable through techn technological solutions. But I think we can only understand and deal with these issues if we bring in cultural, ethical, religious, and historical dimensions. And that's what our academics in Oxford can do. And here we have such wonderful things as the Future of Humanity Institute. We're, it, we're nothing if not ambitious in Oxford. We're planning what the whole future of humanity might look like. So very global in that respect. 
I think another reason we're global, one of my uh, five reasons, is, is, is the kind of impact our academics have. Impact is a word that, that causes a lot of academics a bit of anxiety these days, but what it actually means to me is making a difference. And we make a difference to our students, but we make a difference outside the academy as well. And I think we do this through our engagements with museums, with galleries, with voluntary and third sector organisations, with business, with public policy, with other public institutions. And I think that we do this in many, many ways, but I, but I would say, for example, if you look at modern languages in, in, in Oxford, many ways in which languages um, sort of engage with issues such as cultural diplomacy and other um, kinds of um, international relations. And if you look at um, what our classicists do, for instance, with, um, with ancient sites in, in Greece and, and Italy, those are just a couple of examples of, of the ways in which our academics engage outside the purely academic context. And finally, I think in terms of the global humanities dimensions of Oxford, um, I, I, I think we need to think in terms of global, global competitiveness in higher education. Uh, if you, you can, one can scoff at league tables, but we all look at them all the time. And a recent league, world league table has actually put Oxford fifth in the world as a university, but Oxford Humanities second. Now, in my view, I think Oxford Humanities is first, and uh, one of my goals as head of humanities division is to make sure the rest of the world thinks it's first, and it hits that point in all the league tables. And I think just to end my few minutes here, I want to say I think you, I hope you as an audience will agree that we're first in the world for our global humanities once you've heard my three distinguished colleagues speaking about their subjects. So we're going to start this morning with Rana Mitter, um, who uh, works on the history and politics of modern China. And Rana also is working on a research program on World War II in China. So Rana will be speaking first. Uh, following Rana is Helen Watanabe O'Kelly, who is a professor of German literature and the chair of the Modern Language Faculty Board here in Oxford. And she works on the early modern period in Germany, and she's particularly interested in representations of women. And she's going to be talking about that. She has some stunning representations to show you. And finally, uh, Eugene Rogan, who's um, director of the Middle East Centre at St. Anthony's here. Um, he's written a recent book, which I'm sure many of you know about, on, on, on the Arabs, and was perfectly timed for the Arab Spring. I'm sure you didn't arrange that, Eugene. But, um, but uh, so, so we're going to just have each speaker speaking for a few minutes, and then we will open up to you to um, ask questions and engage with our speakers. So, Rana, would you like to go first? Thanks very much, and uh, good morning. It's a great pleasure to be here this morning with uh, you, our very valued alumni. The fact that you have attended a session at 9.30 in the morning on a Saturday suggests that 10, 20, 30 years ago, you were the people who always turned up to tutorials and did your essays on time. So I'm glad to see that's continued into later life. As Shira has kindly said, um, I'm going to say a little bit about one aspect of what the humanities does here in Oxford. But in talking about that relatively small section of what we do, I'd like to bear in mind that I think what Sarah said is absolutely right. The thing that really makes Oxford's humanities 
uh, division and areas of study distinctive is that it really does encompass the whole of humanity. And one of the ways that we're seeking to illustrate that today is by a focus on various parts of the world. One thing that humanities people are not always brilliant on is technology. So I am hoping that as I press this button, excellent, something here will happen. Now, I don't know how many of you are aficionados of the television, the British television station Channel 5. Can I just have a show of hands, actually? How many people here are British? By birth. By birth. Okay, we'll get to the specifics a bit later in the questions and answers, I think, yeah. <laughs> How, how many of you come back to see us from overseas? Not bad. How many are just visiting this planet temporarily? No, okay, we'll get to that another, another time. Splendid. Well, for those of you who are not British, you may not be aware that there's a television station called Channel 5, which uh, consists entirely, really, of two different uh, types of, uh, of television programme. One is vaguely salacious films about goings-on in uh, strange houses in Paris, which we won't go, on, go into. And the other thing is documentaries about World War II, particularly about the late and not particularly lamented Adolf Hitler. And if you watched nothing but Channel 5, you would get a very odd view of the modern period of history in which essentially the war between Britain and Germany was the only part of World War II that was actually of any relevance to uh, the uh, defeat of fascism. I think it is fair to say that while World War II is something that we all, whatever part of the world we come from, know a great deal about, that there are still hidden aspects of it that have not, I think, been sufficiently understood outside their home countries. And I think this image here is an example of what I mean. It is also, I have to say, from a Channel 5-style television documentary about World War II. But as you may gather, it is not actually uh, one that's intended for broadcast in the UK. Um, you can see, though, that the global nature of World War II is symbolised by these distinguished buildings here. On the left, we have, of course, Big Ben. Uh, in the middle, we have uh, Moscow, the uh, Red Square Clock. Uh, in the middle, sure, what's that place? I'm not, not quite sure. I'm, I'm told it's somewhere quite important in the United uh, States. Now, all you keen tutorial types, here's a chance for you to show your medals. Anyone know what it is on the, uh, the, the right-hand side? Has anyone ever seen this? No. Okay. Well, it is in fact the Liberation Monument, which to this day stands in the centre of Chongqing which may be the biggest city you've never heard of. It has, in terms of its total municipality, over 30 million people. It sits in the southwest of China, and for eight years it was the temporary wartime capital of China from 1938 to 1945. And this liberation monument was built as a celebration of victory over the Japanese at the end of World War II by the Chinese, whom many in the West are somewhat surprised a, to hear were on the winning side in World War II, and B, in some cases, were surprised to hear were in World War II at all. Considering that the Chinese people lost some 15 million dead, had some 80 million of their people turn into refugees, and had most of their modernization and infrastructure destroyed by eight long years, longer than any of the other major allies, even uh, uh, the Soviets and the, uh, and, uh, and the British, it is actually clearly an event of global importance, both in historical and contemporary terms, but one that we don't understand nearly as much as we might do. And I'll come back to that theme a little later. Before I go on, though, I should say in the interests of empirical accuracy, 
accuracy that the Liberation Monument in Chongqing, China, is not in fact twice as high as the U.S. Capitol building. I think if it were, even we might have heard something more about it by now. But to explain how we get to here and why I think it matters as an example of what Oxford is doing to try and bring an understanding of China to the wider Western world and not just our own university, we need, like good humanities scholars, to dive back into history. And I'm very glad to say that our own history with China, the university's history with China, begins over 400 years ago. In fact, in the year 1604, when the very first Chinese language book was brought right here, or around the corner anyway, to the Bodleian Library. Unfortunately, it was 1687 before anyone could read it, uh, since uh, a gentleman called Shen Fuzong arrived in China and became uh, sorry arrived in Oxford from China and became Oxford's first cataloger of Chinese books. I have to say he started the process. David Hellowell, who is the current curator of Chinese books in the Bodleian Library, will tell you that the process is not yet finished. Although, thanks actually to the uh, kindness of a philanthropic donor, we're hoping that the cataloguing of pre-modern books in Chinese in Oxford, a process which began in 1604, may in fact be finished by the year 2015, which in Oxford terms is quite quick really, isn't it? <laughs> We move ahead rapidly to the year, in fact, that World War II broke out, 1939, obviously a year of uh, devastating significance for this country, but also the year that this university first offered a BA honours course in Chinese, which it has continued to do ever since that date. And then moving even more rapidly and irresponsibly, almost like a Channel 5 history documentary, to the year 1994, after 70 years of teaching the BA in Chinese studies, a whole variety of things came together to reshape very fundamentally the way in which our university, the way in which Oxford, understands the history, the society, the literature, and also, although it's not quite so strictly relevant for a presentation about the humanities, the contemporary politics and social science um, of China. And in fact, I'm going to reverse entirely what I just said there, because actually I think it's highly relevant, and I think what Eugene Rogan is going to say later about the Middle East will explain why the humanities and the contemporary social sciences cannot possibly exist without one another. But 1994 is what I call the year of takeoff, because rather like the Chinese economy at that point in the 1990s, suddenly the study and the interest in China in Oxford began to grow. As you may know, ever since then, the Chinese economy has grown at approximately 10% of GDP per year. I'm not sure that each year we've grown quite as much in terms of our involvement in China in Oxford, but at times it seemed pretty close. Let me explain why. In 1994, we received a, uh, again, another generous philanthropic uh, grant. This is becoming a bit of a theme. We like generous philanthropic grants. So if anyone is feeling particularly generous this morning, feel free to uh, add to the, uh, the, uh, the roster, which enabled us to endow a professorship in the professorship in Chinese studies and also establish the Institute for Chinese Studies, which is the core of the study of literature and history and society of China at the University of Oxford. It's located over in Walton Street. And as part of that grant, year after year, we've continued to build up the study of China in Oxford, so much so that now it has over 35 
permanent staff dealing with every aspect of China, from the most ancient archaeology, from bamboo strips, from the oldest jade, all the way through the history of the period from 2000 BC to 2000 AD, and of course, as I've mentioned, very contemporary studies of economics, anthropology, sociology, and the other things that, of course, um, shape and animate the China of today. This makes it certainly the largest single gathering of researchers of China anywhere in Europe and actually is pretty close to being one of the largest anywhere in the Western world. This is done through a variety of... Uh, this is, uh, the, the, rather, the staff work through a variety of means. The most obvious one, but actually perhaps in many senses, of course, the most valuable, is engagement with our students. Um, the BA in Chinese studies, begun in 1939, continues to thrive. Uh, each year we take around 15 students who basically put themselves in for four years of hellish boot camp of learning Mandarin, classical Chinese, including a year spent away at Peking University these days. Modern Chinese language ability is very much part of our program, along with an insistence that the classical language is central to understanding the holistic view of uh, China as a culture and a society. But within the last 10 years, again, we've also introduced a two-year MPhil course, a master's course based in the humanities of China, a one-year MSc with both humanities and social science streams, and, of course, an ever-larger 40, 50, 60-plus number of doctoral students studying various aspects of China, many of whom have gone on to academic posts both here in the UK and around the world in North America and uh, in Asia. Another aspect, which again is really something that's taken off within the last 15 years or so, is the emergence of large collaborative research projects and groups within the humanities of China. Because one of the things we've also realized is that while we value, honor, and would always want to maintain the traditional view of the historian or the literature scholar who takes her or his piles of documents, gets locked away in a room, Occasionally, you know, the spouse will throw some raw chicken or something over the door to, uh, to feed them, and they will come out with the wonderful 500-page book, the masterpiece that they've been working on for a while. But, uh, at least that's how it works in my house, except for the masterpiece part, obviously. But um, the other side of the way in which the humanities has changed, not just on the study of China, but more generally, is that the research team model, taken from the science lab, has actually come in and been adapted and been very successful in many ways. One thing I'm particularly proud of, uh, which um, I showed you a very short clip of at the uh, beginning, is um, my own research program on World War II in China, which is a five-year program funded uh, by the Leverhulme Trust, major educational charity. And um, it cons it's consisted over its five years of about 13 researchers, postdoctoral fellows, and doctoral students, all of whom are, at, uh, are researching and publishing on the various aspects of the politics, the society, the economy, and the cultural impact of that devastating wartime experience. But I am very far from being alone. Um, the former warden of Merton, Professor Dame Jessica Rawson, has a major research group on a much earlier period looking at the archaeology of early China. And in fact, one of our great triumphs, Sharon knows, in the last few months is that our colleague, Dr. Hilda De Viet, who is an expert in early imperial history, the uh, 14th to the 16th centuries, actually a little earlier, I think, now I come to think of it, has just won a major grant from the European Research Council of over a million euros in which she will look at the way in which China's statecraft and governance and literary cultures came together in the medieval and early modern period, something which has 
actually a great deal of relevance for anyone who understands the bureaucracy of China today. And along with that, we also have a fabulous new focal point within Oxford to think about our own links with China, and that is this. Very, very impressive new building, the University China Centre. Once again, and you're almost going to get bored, but I hope not hearing this, funded by a very generous philanthropic donation, in this case from the uh, Hong Kong businessman, Mr. Dixon Poon. And this is the Dixon Poon University of China Centre. You can see that the uh, sort of pagoda-like uh, plans at the, uh, the top there uh, give a, a slightly uh, East Asian uh, feel to the building. Um, I hope you'll feel inspired to go and have a look at this fantastic building. Unfortunately, I have to warn you that you might have to wait a little bit, to be precise, probably about three years or so, because in fact, this is in planning stage and is scheduled to open in 2013. But the endowment of the building and the official university approval of the China Centre as a place where we'll bring together scholars of the humanities of China, the social sciences of China, um, we hope in our plans the library and research facilities, Everything that, sent, that brings together our study of this very important society will be symbolized by having this major building, again, the biggest center for the study of China anywhere in Europe, and actually, I think, possibly the largest anywhere in the Western world, because some of the other major universities, the Harvards and Berkeleys of this world, actually have a succession of small buildings rather than one um, single one. So if size is everything, I'm sure it's not, I think we may get to conquer on that particular area. And I think it becomes important because one of the things we're increasingly aware of is that China is on Oxford's radar screen as much as it is on the world's radar screen. The largest single group of undergraduates from any country after UK in this uh, university now is from China, not from Ireland, not from the United States, not from any of the places that might obviously be uh, the, uh, the number two spot, but uh, from China. Graduate students, uh, even more numerous, I think, although uh, number, number three or number four, I think, in terms of country origin within the university. And this means that we are now on China's radar screen. Last week, the vice prime minister of China visited, uh, well, this building amongst, uh, amongst others. In the last two days, we had a presentation on the Selden map, the 17th century map of China, which actually the Bodleians had for about 350 years, but as is the Oxford Way, has only just realised it's actually a large and valuable and intellectually important piece of work. And a major seminar has taken place just round the corner from here a couple of days ago. And one of the things the Vice Prime Minister wanted to see when he arrived was that very map. So uh, we um, are aware of that. We're also aware of our increasing importance of our cultural knowledge of history of literature to interest groups such as the Foreign Office, to the business community, and other people who, while they will never be the central part of what we do as researchers, are definitely people who we think are interested and uh, engaged with the wider agenda that we hope to bring in terms of understanding. So to finish off, I would say that while I think the story of Oxford's engagement with China, and particularly in the humanities, is a story that continues to grow and to be very successful, there are areas where we continue to think hard about what we need to do next. I would say that number one is clearly the need to support students. The one area where we are not number one, or number two, or even actually in the top ten, unfortunately, I think, is in our ability to bring and give scholarships to the very best graduate and undergraduate students. And that's something that we're looking, I think, to change as soon as possible. The need to build a relationship with China as China becomes a more important player. We must always keep our own autonomy, but also engage in a culturally informed 
an empathetic way with this very important society, particularly since they are going to be such a large part of our alumni base. If we come back in 10, 15 years' time, I'd be surprised if a much larger proportion of the faces here were not East Asian, particularly since they get up very early in the morning as well. And finally, to make sure that this moment we're in now, where Oxford is in the eyes of many people around the world, including in Asia, an absolutely premier place, if not the premier place, to study China and to also draw on its humanities tradition, to not let that be a blip that disappears, to sustain it. And that's perhaps the hardest task of all, but it's also the one where you, our alumni, are most useful to us because you can find out more about what we do, you can ask us about it, you can make suggestions, you can help us, and we hope that, as with other aspects of your education in Oxford, it's not just a period that relates to three or four years of your life, but we hope a very continuing relationship that we on our side are very, very happy to nurture. Share. Thank you. Right. Well, Rana said how wonderful it was to be here, and it is wonderful to be here. Um, Yes, I'm a professor of German literature. I'm also a a college tutor, and what makes it all worthwhile are the students. So you're our students. Can I please think of you as as my students rather than than, um, alumni? I should say, actually, that's my college out there. Um, this is Exeter College Garden, so uh, you know I feel I feel very connected to my to my college existence as well as to my faculty existence. Um, lots of things resonated with me when I heard Rana Rana speaking. You know because he too was talking about Oxford's engagement with another culture. Well, it started with German in the eighteen in the eighteen forties. Yes. Yes, we are the largest department of German outside of the German-speaking world. Yes, we are number one in our research. Um, I, too, work in research teams. And, in fact, this... I mean, I realise this is a bit of a sort of commercial because you're seeing the cover of my most recent book. But I wrote it as, um, as the leader of a research team which was called, dramatically, Representations of Women and Death in German Literature, Art and Media from the Renaissance to the Present. So we had Representations of women's suicides, and we had uh, we had infanticide, and and so on, and we had terrorists. But I was doing the warriors, so this was very very exciting. Uh, now then, this is this is going to be something very different from from what Rana was telling you about. I actually want to take you into a little bit of what the research was like, why it was exciting, uh, why I enjoyed doing it so much, and why it matters. By the way, you can tell I'm not uh, from the UK either, nor indeed, as we just worked out, are any of us. So this is, this is also, you know, we're a sort of a living demonstration of the, global, of the global nature of Oxford, even though I do realise my island is not very far away. So the subject of this is, uh, let me just work out how I am doing this. Yes. Um, is the very large number of literary and visual representations in German culture of women warriors in every century from the Renaissance to the present. I could have gone back to the Middle Ages, but you you know, it's ambitious enough to do five or six hundred years. Representations on the stage, in the opera house, on the page, and in paintings and prints. 
These imaginings, in some cases, are depictions from classical culture. This is uh, a Renaissance imagining of, um, of the Amazons. They can be depictions of Joan of Arc or of Charlotte Corday, real historical women. But in most cases, they are reimaginings of mythological figures or warriors, figures to be found in ancient and medieval history or in the Bible. I'm particularly fond of this picture. It's the look of slight, pensive regret on her face that I particularly like. You know, she's hoping she isn't going to get the blood on her frock, isn't she? (laughs) Now, these, these ancient sources of Western culture tell stories about the woman warrior because she is, by definition, a transgressive and therefore frightening figure. She leaves her proper female sphere... She takes up a weapon, she goes to war, and she kills. Now, she may be doing this from the best of motives. She may be mandated by God, by the gods, by her own people. But the idea of a woman with the potential to kill causes deep unease. Now, to whom does it call deep unease? Well, the answer is to men. This is a much more modern uh, imagining of Judith like a sort of evil witch. And you can see the head of Holofernes is down at the uh, bottom as you are looking at his right-hand side of the picture. Now, the majority of representations that I'm looking at are of women by men, and so by and large they convey male desires and male fears. Male figure of a woman who is as strong as a man, who cannot be tamed because she is holding a weapon, who has the power to kill, who perhaps has already killed. These fears are very deep-seated. At the same time, of course, such a woman is deeply fascinating, provided you, the man, can tame her. So she's on the one hand the embodiment of beauty, the object of desire. Um, On the other hand, she's beastly. She's the personification of temptation, duplicity, of crazed violence, the object of fear and loathing. Now you might object, and the, the people here who did classics... Uh, will be thinking in their minds, yes, but of course we know all about this from our classical studies. Why, why focus on the German-speaking world? What's so, you know, what's so particular about that? Now, my contention is that the woman warrior has a continuous prominence and importance in German that she doesn't have in any other Western culture. Not only are the depictions of such women extremely prevalent, but many of them are officially venerated canonical monuments of German culture. Paintings of, and I'm afraid here's another Judith, but from an earlier period, Lukas Kranach, the elder. Kranach has a whole series of these, um, and if you've ever been to the Stuttgart Art Art Gallery, you'll know this one, or yet another one by Gustav Klimt. She's in a sort of haze of orgasmic pleasure having just hacked off Holofernes's head Uh, Friedrich Schiller's Maid of Orleans there was a wonderful production of that on the German stage on the English stage not all that long ago Heinrich von Kleist's Amazon Penthesilea who sinks her teeth into the dying flesh of Achilles just you know, just one of the things that happens in that play. Uh, Friedrich Hebel's uh, Judith, you'll see a picture of that later. And of course, Wagner's Valkyrie Brunhilde, the great Birgit Nielsen here. 
The warrior woman is also staged in some of the great German cities, and I'll just give you the one example. August, if you know Berlin, who knows Berlin? Who's been to Berlin recently? Well, if, if you were down there, you know where the Berlin Cathedral is, and the Altus Museum, is, looking at the cathedral, the Altus Museum is on the left, and there's this wonderful statue, the 1840s, August Kiss, the fighting Amazon, this naked figure hurling her, her spear at the, at the lion who's, who's trying to um, basically eat her horse. Uh, now, and then there's the evolution of the figure of Germania, and again, we could spend a whole hour talking about how the iconography of the representation of Germany evolves from classical times up to the, to the present. The final stage of the evolution in the 19th century is this picture that I took for the cover picture of my book. Of course, 1914, it's this, it's this awful period of sort of xenophobic frenzy, um, but she's modelled on Schiller's Maid of Orleans. The world is in flames behind her. She's a fury. She's, she's holding her, uh, her, her sword. She's in, she's in armour. Now, after World War II, the number of representations of women warriors in German decreases, but the older works that depict her are by now taught in schools and universities, performed and viewed frequently, reproduced, for instance, in the case of Karnach and Klimt's paintings of Judith, on everything from ashtrays to posters, while the mass media now make the old imaginings available to a new audience. To cite only three examples, in the year 2004, there were 11 separate productions of Schiller's Maid of Orleans, Die Jungfrau von Orléans, in German theatres. Wagner's Brunhilde regularly strides across the stage of German opera houses, not just that of Bayreuth. And, of course, Brunhilde was then imagined in silent films. There's the, this, the, the wonderful film by Fritz Lang of the Nibelungen lead. And, of course, the modern television age, again, presents the woman warrior to a new, to a new audience. Um, this particular series on Sat, Sat Eins had, had huge viewing, viewing figures. So worrying is the woman warrior, just to come back to that theme, that she has to be tamed by being deflowered and raped or by being killed. This goes back to classical times too. Uh, the best way to kill her is to get her to kill herself. It's obvious, isn't it, really? German literature and opera are full of the various ways that their male authors and composers imagine this coming about. She chokes herself on her bonds. This is Epicharis, 16, uh, what is it, 1666. She drinks poison. She does that quite regularly on the German stage. She rides into the flames. You'll remember if you've ever been to Götterdämmerung. That's what Brunhilde does at the end. Um, she, she stabs herself. She drowns herself. In several German plays, she wills herself into the grave. That's what Kleist Penthesilea does. That's what Grillparzer's Libussa does. Uh, Judith, as we know from, if you remember the, the, the Bible story in the Apocrypha, she doesn't die, but Hebel, uh, the great German dramatist of the 19th century, actually so organises it that even she is probably going to be killed. Now then, why does it matter to investigate all the gory and steamy imaginings about the woman warrior in high German culture? And I'll just give you one reason, which is that I believe that they explain a lot about Freud's influential ideas about femininity. 
Freud tells us in his famous lecture on that subject, on die Weiblichkeit, femininity, that the way to find out more about femininity is to turn to the poets. He says, for those who know German, wenden sie sich an die Dichter. Turn to the ask the poets. You want to know about a woman? Well, you don't ask a woman. What a silly idea. No, you turn to the poets. And he himself, he had the, the classic 19th century um, uh, education. He was steeped in the works of German literature. Um, and he grew up with the kind of depictions of the woman warrior uh, that I've been, been talking about. So he presents the woman warrior. Uh, this is another, another very interesting sidelight, the, the heroic maiden. Um, he presents the woman as a being of lack who enters the male sphere, she takes up the sword in order to become a phallic woman before, of course, she realises her terrible mistake and kills herself. Now, when you read Freud in his place in the chronology of German literature, art and thought, you cannot avoid the conclusion that he did indeed get many of his extraordinary ideas about women from literature before passing them on to a waiting world where they become medicalised and institutionalised. We could talk a lot about that one too. Women themselves, what about the women themselves is my final point. Um, didn't they? Didn't they say anything? Now, they only really begin to have their say from the second half of the 18th century because women only begin to write secular literature in German much later than they do in other countries. You know, if, you, if you know French or English literature, say, of the 17th century, they are much more active and visible and published. So it's the late 18th century before women really begin to publish secular literature in any quantity. And they don't engage at this stage with all these male imaginings about Amazons, Joan of Arc, Judith. Instead, they invent fictional women who take part in wars in the real world, imagining a space for themselves in which they can think the unthinkable, even if the women authors sometimes feel impelled ultimately to reinforce patriarchal norms at the end of the book. They use the relatively new form of the novel to imagine women putting on trousers and taking part in war and revolution, acting in a way that society would never have allowed them or any virtuous woman to act in real life. It is only when women have achieved some measure of emancipation at the end of the 19th century that they begin to examine such figures as Judith and the Amazons for themselves, move beyond the dichotomy of what I call beauty or beast, um, and wring some emancipatory potential out of these imaginings. Thank you very much. Talk about a hard act to follow. And without any pyrotechnics to put on the screen, I'm going to distract you. You know, we're a very multidisciplinary university, and you often wonder where the humanities sit in this pantheon of arts, sciences, medicine, law, whatnot. But I knew that we were in with respect with this university when I saw that they had assigned us my favorite room in the entire campus for the discussion of the humanities. So just looking around at the architectural splendor for a moment, I hope we can then allow me to talk in a more mundane vein without any images of Amazon with which to embellish a discussion <clears throat> about what's going on in Middle Eastern studies in this university. Rather like Chinese studies, we're a part of Oriental studies, and that's our humanities connection. Our origins are nearly as ancient. I think we can trace the study of Arabic at this university back to the founding of the Laudian Chair in 1636, and the manuscripts and books 
to serve the purpose of teaching these exotic languages. Persian followed shortly thereafter, Ottoman Turkish as well. Uh, gave rise to a core of educators who attracted students from Britain and around Europe in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries. And we made sort of Arabic and Islamic studies one of the foundations of an Oriental Institute that was one of Europe's finest. So if you were studying Arabic or Islam, you were probably coming through the Oriental Institute where these fields were taught very much the way that classics were taught. Languages that weren't necessarily ones you would encounter. Our students didn't get the chance to go and study in Europe abroad programs or in intensive summer schools in Constantinople or in Cairo. They'd study these languages rather the same way you'd approach the classics as sort of dead texts, but they achieved such remarkable mastery over their language that they were able to compile the grammars and the dictionaries that were really laying the foundation for an engagement that would prove far more interactive and dynamic in the 19th and 20th centuries. And it's not to say that the Oriental Institute wasn't a political place. Uh, very famously, uh, one of our colleagues, Walid Khalidi, a very great Palestinian scholar, resigned his post at the Oriental Institute in protest against the 1956 Suez Crisis and Britain's role in the invasion of Egypt. So politics was always very near at hand. But it really wasn't until 1957 when in the Cold War interest in strategic areas of rivalry between the Soviet bloc and the Western bloc, that this new field called area studies emerged. The areas that were favored strategically were Russian and Soviet studies, Chinese studies, Middle Eastern studies. And the languages, cultures, politics, and history of these regions received a great deal of funding on both sides of the Atlantic so that scholars would be able to play a role in assisting government and policymakers in the great battles of the Cold War. And in 1957, Oxford established its Middle East Center at St. Anthony's College as precisely that, a sort of interdisciplinary venture where students would come to Oxford and study the region from a whole host of different disciplines, anthropology, sociology, history, politics, economics, as well as language and, and, and the study of Islam as a religion, which had always been there in Oxford. And this is a kind of template that applies to area studies more broadly in the university. And, and we've talked about China and the Middle East, but you could also talk about Russia and Eurasia, about India and South Asia, about African studies, about Latin American studies, all great strengths in the University of Oxford. We only have time to talk about a couple today. And... Um, so at, many of these are based at St. Anthony's College, which is a postgraduate college many of you will be familiar with, so uh, sort of a hub, but in no way a monopoly of St. Anthony's. The Middle East Center has developed and thrived at St. Anthony's. Uh, it provides a kind of core to a broader community, bridging between the Oriental Institute, between Yonchen Manor, which is the Center for Study of uh, Hebrew and Jewish Studies, uh, the Oxford Center for Islamic Studies, which is a recognized independent center, not formally part of the university, but very much a partner of ours. Even the Oxford Institute for Energy Studies, which has been sort of leading the agenda on research on oil and hydrocarbons, which of course are so central to talking about the Middle East today. <clears throat> we, um, as a community, number about between six or eight permanent academics. 
We cover a wide range of disciplines. Uh, some will be familiar with you, people like Tariq Ramadan, who's professor of contemporary Islamic studies, Avi Shleim, who's a great scholar of Israel and the Arab world, Philip Robbins, Michael Willis, Celia Karsak in Turkish studies just retired, but a core of really outstanding scholars all grouped under one roof. And so providing a kind of dynamic place for students and faculty to meet. But it is only just a hub of what is a broader universe of Arab and Middle Eastern studies spread right around the collegiate university. So Wadham, with two posts in Iranian studies and Persian studies, has always attracted students of Iran and Persia and provides a real partner in that area. It's St. Anne's. They've just established a new chair in Israel studies, and Derek Penslar has been poached from Toronto to take up that post in one year's time, but building on the work at Yarnton Manor in the Middle East Center with specific reference to Israel. At Maudlin College, the chair in uh, contemporary Arab studies currently held by Clive Holes. So we, there's a sort of broader universe, St. Cross College, another real center of uh, interaction and a number of post holders there, Wolfson College, another graduate college. So you have this broad universe coming together through a Middle East center that provides the library facilities, uh, is expanding rapidly, and we'll also be hosting a new building. We've uh, just, we're going to tender with uh, our new building. We've got planning permission against all the odds in an Oxford that is extremely conservative of its beautiful architectural heritage. So Natalie's is in a conservation area of Victorian splendor. But we wanted to bring an architect to Oxford that would give us a distinctive piece of 21st century architecture. I mean, look around you. It's not as though people have been timid in the past. At the time that Sheldonian building went up, its architect was very little known, and he was building in a form that no one had seen before. But I don't think anyone would argue that it was a mistake to be bold in uh, giving us uh, you know, the, the first of many works um, to, to, to break with tradition here. Uh, our architect is Zaha Hadid. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. I wish I had the image to show you. Uh, she's given us a, a, a double-curved, sculptured building that uh, will be clad in stainless steel and we believe will withstand the test of time and in a couple hundred years be that really great piece of 21st century architecture that people will come to visit. And uh, so do come. It's going to take us a couple of years to get it up. We'll be breaking ground in February. And uh, it's going to be... Uh, certainly one of the more exciting things uh, in the sort of half century of the Middle East Center and modern Middle Eastern studies in Oxford. But I'd like to move away from that. I have brochures for anybody who's interested in either Arab studies at the university or about the Middle East Center itself to say just a little bit about what this particular interdisciplinary approach has allowed us to do as an intellectual community at a moment of tremendous transformation in the region as we've witnessed in 2011. Whether you call it the Arab Spring, or the Arab Awakening, or the Revolutionary Year, there's been the kind of tectonic shift in the region that is really unprecedented, well, at least since the 1950s, when you last saw a kind of revolutionary fervor sweep the region. And there has been a debate in scholars, scholarly circles about the value of area studies and the interdisciplinary approach to regions. And I think in the 1990s, you would have found most American social scientists really arguing that it was a mistake to try and train people in many disciplines, that we would make our best contribution by being well-grounded in one discipline. So a social scientist should really be trained in social science methods. They're increasingly quantitative. They involved less interaction with the region itself. You didn't really need to speak the languages to assemble the data sets. And this is the material that was increasingly being published by the leading journals in North America and in Europe. And we found that we were having to defend a little bit 
the kind of local knowledge that we prized by our approach of bringing political scientists and historians and anthropologists together. And all I can say is the value of the interdisciplinary approach has really been proven in this year, where I think my colleagues and I have been absolutely run off our feet to try and meet the combined demands that the 24-hour media schedule gives us and of governments who have found themselves faced with more change in what had been a very stable re region than any of their wildest contingency planning could have prepared them for. I think if you were to go to Washington or Whitehall and say, if there's a revolution in Egypt, do you have a plan? And they probably did. They might even have had a plan for what would happen in instability in two parts of the region. But no one I've spoken to in Washington, in London, in Paris, and I've talked to a lot of people in the past year, had any clue that it could all go viral in this way. And so they are more open today to advice and interaction from the academic world as from the intelligence world and from journalists and from their own wonderful researchers. They need more data. They need more feed. And so in this year, I've had more contact with the Prime Minister and his office, the Department for International Development, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. This isn't about name dropping. It's actually about a new degree of openness and interaction with government. And I think has proven, you know, it really has validated uh, an approach to the region where you don't just know the data set, but you know who the people in government are, what their backgrounds are, and who's going to follow them in a moment of revolutionary fervor. And it's not just the academics, it's not just the permanent people here. What's been really exciting for us, because we have such an international student body, is that as things unfolded in Tunis, in Tahrir Square, in Pearl Square in Manama, in Yemen, in Syria, our students were, are from these countries. We often had to give them leaves of absence because I had three students who had to go back to Tahrir Square. They're like, the most important event of my lifetime is unrolling now. You think your studies are going to outweigh this? And of course we said, no, you must go. But then when they'd come back, we'd have these seminars. And, you know, the buzz of excitement as you would assemble a capacity crowd to hear, not from we gray beards and gray hairs, but from these young people who have gone and participated in the revolutions that have changed their world. And some of them are joyful. My students from Bahrain are in mourning. It's not an easy year, and I can't tell you that it's all going to have happy endings. But I know this much. We have our finger on the pulse from the research that we've been doing for years, from the students that we interact with, and from the contacts we have with the region. And I think that is going to stand Oxford Middle Eastern Studies as Oxford Area Studies in very good stead for a long time to come. Thank you.